Dear Father, in a book that promises to answer the question of exactly what it is that you require of us, please help us to understand the answer uh, that is given by uh, the book of Micah. Help us to apply this to our lives. Amen. All right, so we keep coming back to this slide every time, but just remember where we are, that we're in this uh, roughly 200-year period of time where we still have these uh, two kingdoms here, Israel, the northern tribes, and Judah. Okay, so we've gone through the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos, Hosea. Notice most of these we've been saying are prophets to Israel. Okay, but as we come down here to Micah and Isaiah, these prophets had a message uh, for both Judah and Israel. Okay, and so Micah, uh, you know, compared to these other colorful figures, you know, we could all come up with lots of interesting stories and things that we remember about Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, certainly, Hosea, and the, the woman that God asked him to marry. But uh, compared to that, we don't know a lot about Micah. Okay, so I'll just very briefly bring up a little bit of, of what we know about Micah. One comes from uh, the book of Jeremiah, and this probably refers to the Micah that we're going to talk about today. I remember coming back to the table here that Micah, his ministry was here right towards the end before the Assyrian captivity, okay, and certainly overlapped with King Hezekiah, who was a king who did some good things here in Judah. But this is from uh, Jeremiah 26. When Hezekiah was king of Judah, the prophet Micah of Moresheth told all the people that the Lord Almighty had said. So we're going to get a summary of uh, Micah's message from Jeremiah. And this was it. Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a pile of ruins. And the temple hill will become a forest. King Hezekiah and the people of Judah did not put Micah to death. Instead, Hezekiah honored the Lord and tried to win his favor. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he said he would bring on them. And we've talked before about the many times that God changed his mind. So here's uh, interesting evidence that at least for uh, the kingdom of Judah, that the message of Micah uh, had an impact, and it was successful. It didn't seem to be successful, though, for uh, the kingdom of, of Israel. Okay, and the only really colorful little nugget I could find from the book of Micah about the person and the life of Micah, here in Micah 1.8, to show my sorrow, I will walk around barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and wail like an ostrich. And I've always tried to bring up with these prophets um, the incredible things that they did in order to reach people. Hosea probably being the most dramatic example. Well, uh, being the belly of a fish, I guess that would kind of rank up there pretty high. Okay, but Micah also did something quite dramatic. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to spend a long time on this because I hope most of you are here when we went through uh, the book of Hosea. And we described basically that th these were a very religious people. Okay, but also a very uh, idolatrous people. This is the same crowd um, here that Micah is talking to. So I'll read just a, a few passages here to, to try to support that. Here again in, in the first chapter of Micah, talking about the people. All its precious idols will be smashed to pieces. Everything given to its temple prostitutes will be destroyed by fire. So this, this evidence about the worship service involving uh, temple prostitutes, that's, that's not just extra-biblical material. We, we get that very much in the Bible. All its images will become a desolate heap. Samaria, which is the, the capital of Israel, acquired these things for its fertility rights. And now her enemies will carry them off for temple prostitutes elsewhere. Samaria's wounds cannot be healed. 
Okay, so the, the idolatry that was very prevalent. Okay, but again, these were also a, a religious people. Okay, and, and last time I kind of gave the illustration, how can you be religious? How can you be claiming to worship the true God as they were in Hosea and also be idolatrous at the same time? Okay, and we said how we just see this all around us, don't we? This is a very, quotes, religious nation that we live in. Does that mean there's no idolatry? I mean, you absolutely can uh, mix the two. Here in Micah 3, listen to me, you rulers of Israel, you that hate justice and turn right into wrong. You are building God's city, Jerusalem, on a foundation of murder and injustice. The city's rulers govern for bribes. The priests interpret the law for pay. The prophets give their revelations for money, and they all claim that the Lord is with them. No harm will come to us, they say. The Lord is with us. Doom to those who plot evil, who go to bed dreaming up crimes. As soon as it's morning, they're off full of energy, doing what they've planned. They covet fields and grab them, find homes and take them. They bully the neighbor and his family, see people only for what they can get out of them. And uh, this reminds me very much of Amos, the, the social injustice, the oppression of the poor, stealing land and homes and, and those kinds of things. Okay, and finally here in Micah 2, the people preach at me and say, don't preach at us. Don't preach about all that. God is not going to disgrace us. Do you think the people of Israel are under a curse? Has the Lord lost his patience? Would he really do such things? Doesn't he speak kindly to those who do right? Well, the Lord replies, you attack my people like enemies. Men return from battle, thinking they are safe at home. But there you are, waiting to steal the coats off their backs. You drive the women of my people out of the homes they love, and you have robbed their children of my blessings forever. Get up and go. There is no safety here anymore. Your sins have doomed this place to destruction. These people want the kind of prophet who goes around full of lies and deceit and says... I prophesy that wine and liquor will flow for you. They just want prophets that will tell them uh, what they want to hear. Okay, so with that little bit of a background, we're going to spend the whole rest of our time here just talking about one passage, and it's probably the passage you're most familiar with from Micah, okay, because there's a song we like to sing that um, uh, comes from Micah 6, and uh, this is such a, a redundant theme in the Bible. We, we really need to get this right because it's repeated more than 10 times, this, this concept here. Okay, Micah 6. What shall I bring to the Lord, the God of heaven, when I come to worship him? Okay, here are the options. Shall I bring the best calves to burn as offerings to him? Okay, well, we could answer yes. We could give some scripture uh, to support that. How about this? Will the Lord be pleased if I bring him thousands of sheep or endless streams of olive oil? Now, is this just a poetic, flowery language here? What did Solomon do? He dedicated the temple, thousands of cattle that were slaughtered. Okay? Now, God didn't command him to do that, but the question is asked here. Is this what God wants? How about this? Shall I offer him my firstborn child to pay for my sins? Okay, well, most of us here would say, well, that, no, of course not. That's, that's ridiculous. Was it ridiculous to the people in this time to offer your firstborn child? Okay, and before we get on to the answer here, we need to say, no, this is a serious uh, proposition. Okay, it's been some time, I think, since we talked about this story in 2 Kings, but it illustrates this point. There was this battle going on, and remember the king of Moab was losing, 
And so he took these swordsmen with him. He forced his way through enemy lines. Okay, but he failed. And so this is what he did. He took his oldest son, who was to succeed him as king. He offered him on the city wall as a sacrifice to the God of Moab. And what's so surprising here is the reaction of the Israelites. Why did they do this? The Israelites were terrified. And so they drew back from the city and returned to their own country. Now, why were they terrified? I mean, the king of Moab sacrifices his firstborn. And the Israelites, even though they're winning the battle, flee. Okay, a number of ways of understanding this. But in this time, the, the highest devotion to God, to the gods, was to kill your firstborn. And so the Israelites here, they watch this happen. And uh, even though God said, I am the one true God, okay, there still was a belief that, uh, well, we have a God of Israel, we have a God of Moab, and there are lots of these gods here. And the God of Moab here, he's been appeased by the death of the firstborn. So the Israelites flee. Okay, so again, this was a, a common practice. And just as one other uh, verse for this, how, you know, even Solomon, of course, uh, became involved in, in the worship of Moloch, who demanded child sacrifice. And here in Jeremiah 32, God would say they've built altars to Baal and Hinnom Valley to sacrifice their sons and daughters to the god Moloch. I did not command them to do this, and it did not even enter my mind that they would do such a thing and make the people of Judah sin. So this concept, again, we've said the, the hallmark of idolatry all the way through the Old Testament is appeasement of angry gods. The gods are always angry. The more blood, the better. Best of all, you kill your firstborn. And so last year when we talked about the whole story of Abraham and Isaac, that if you were living in this time, what would you take away from this story? Well, one thing you could certainly take away from this is the God of Abraham is certainly different than the other gods. The other gods demand sacrifice, death of your firstborn. God of Abraham is different. Okay? The God of Abraham will provide. He himself will provide the sacrifice. Doesn't demand uh, the death of our firstborn. Okay? It would make a very uh, vivid impression, I think, if that was your paradigm in that time. So we come back here to Micah. What should we bring? Okay, sheep, endless streams of olive oil. Shall I offer him my firstborn child to pay for my sins? Okay, and the answer is no. The Lord has told us what is good. This is what he requires of you. And I always find it uh, helpful, you know, when we have a, such a statement like this. This is what he requires of you. Um, how would we answer that today? Okay, you have to write a little one paragraph. This is the bottom line. This is what God requires of this. And, and I mean these... Uh, these uh, proposals um, seriously, okay, and I'm not trying to, um, well, I'm just hoping to, to stimulate some, some thought about what does God actually require of us, and I think it, it seems, I spent some time last night surfing around websites of bottom line statements that are, that are often given, and, and uh, often this is how we describe it in, in Christianity. Well, this is the bottom line, accept the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins, okay, do I see that as important? Absolutely. But is this how we, Micah is going to answer the question? Except that Jesus paid the price for your salvation, the emphasis on sacrifice, the payment of a legal penalty, adjusting our legal standing. Okay, is that the bottom line? This is what the Lord requires of us. Let me throw out some other uh, options here. This is what he requires of you. What about this? 
Okay, this is, uh, I have to say personally, uh, something that I've found myself uh, falling into at times. Well, just get the doctrines right. Get the right list. Make sure that um, we have a better list than the church next door. We're really, we're, we're correct on the state of the dead. These other people are not. That we have the right day of worship. That our ideas about the atonement and inspiration. Uh, saved by knowledge. Okay, saved by the right set of doctrines. Now, I'm all about knowledge. Knowledge is wonderful. The doctrines are important. Okay, but is this the thing? This is it. Is this the bottom line? So again, we come back to the question here. This is what he requires of you. And the answer is, this is it. To do what is right. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Okay, and um, I'm going to just, it's so redundant how many times this concept is repeated. But just in other translations, to do what is right is to do justice. Uh, We spent a whole Bible study on justice, that that is the social justice. It is how the outcasts are treated, those who are uh, being uh, oppressed by others. That's what it means to do justice, to love mercy. In other translations, to love kindness or to be compassionate and loyal in your love, to show constant love. And to walk humbly with your God. What does that mean, to walk humbly with your God? In in another translation, to live in humble fellowship with your God. Because really, can you do right? Can you love mercy? Can you live out a life of love unless you walk humbly with your God? So I think we see here in this passage something really incredible. It would seem that that God's emphasis to the people in this time is not, uh, yeah, I know you're going to church. I know you're sacrificing. I know you're doing all of these things. But let me tell you what is really important. Live in humble fellowship with me. Uh, live out a life of love and mercy. Do what is right. Okay, that's, that's what is important. And um, so just to, I hope, impress on you how, what, what an important theme this is. When we went through uh, the book of Hosea, the exact same uh, concept here. What I want from you is plain and clear. I mean, again, just a bottom line. This is what I want. It's plain and clear. And we talked about uh, Hebrew poetry, how it's not based on rhyme but on repetition. And the repetition here is this is what I want. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. So, again, the, the relationship here is between constant love between us and God and knowing him. Eternal life is to know God. And every time, as we go through these verses, we'll see these kinds of things. Constant love, knowing God, contrast with sacrifice. That's what we saw in Micah. Okay, as opposed to animal sacrifice and offerings. What God really wants is our constant love. He wants us to know him. Okay, that's from Hosea. Um, The first uh, example of this is all the way back in 1 Samuel 15. Though, what is more pleasing to the Lord to bring him offerings and sacrifices? There it is again, offerings, sacrifices, or to offer obedience to his voice. Obedience is far better than sacrifice. Listening to him is much better than offering him the fat of rams. And listening is is so much uh, here tied in with obedience. You know, when you say to your son, listen, uh, you're really saying obey. Okay, so there's a a close uh, parallel here. But notice the contrast between listening to God, obedience, uh, with sacrifice. In Proverbs, to do what is right and fair, or to do righteousness and justice, that pleases the Lord more than sacrifice. We always have 
this, this contrast that is, that is very wide. And several in the Psalms, you do not want sacrifices and offerings. You did not ask for animals burned whole on the altar or for sacrifices to take away sins. Instead, you have given me ears to hear you, again, to listen. And so I answered, here I am, your instructions for me are in the book of the law. How I love to do your will, my God, I keep your teaching in my heart. So again, the contrast here is between sacrifices and offerings, animal sacrificial system, and listening to God, doing what God uh, would like us to do. In Psalm 50, God would say, I do not reprimand you because of your sacrifices and the burnt offerings. I mean, God gave the sacrificial system, but yet I do not need blood. Do I eat flesh and drink blood? Here is what I want. Another bottom line statement. Here's what I want. Let the giving of thanks be your sacrifice to God and give the Almighty all that you promised. Now, the next uh, psalm here, 51, this is in the context of David committing adultery with uh, Bathsheba. And uh, David's prayer here is to God, you do not want sacrifices or I would bring it to you. The sacrifice that you desire is a humble spirit. Okay, kind of like uh, Micah. Oh God, you will not reject a humble and repentant heart. Okay, that's what God really wants. And Psalm 69, I will praise God with a song. I will proclaim his greatness by giving him thanks. This will please the Lord more than offering him cattle, more than sacrificing a full-grown bull. And kind of what we need to ask ourselves, and the reason I kind of uh, challenged you a little bit with the, um, the discussion about the, the death of Jesus, isn't the sacrificial system, didn't it all point towards the cross? Wasn't Jesus the fulfillment of the sacrificial system? Okay, how do we apply these verses to our own uh, understanding about the sacrifice of Jesus. Okay, we read this a few weeks ago. This is in Amos, where the Lord says, I hate your religious festivals. Now, that would really hurt to hear that from God. I hate your religious festivals. I cannot stand them. When you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept it. I will not accept all this blood you bring me as offerings. Stop your noisy songs. I do not want to listen to your music any longer. And again, here is what I want. Instead, let justice flow like a stream and righteousness like a river that never grows, goes dry. So again, if we are, you know, if we're oppressing the orphans, the widows, okay, if we're cruel in, in the way we're relating to other people, uh, does God really care about our noisy songs in church? Okay, um, God's trying to make a point here. This is much more important. And this is Isaiah 1, another one of these uh, um, passages that's just uh, very potent. God would say, do you think I want all these sacrifices you keep offering to me? I have had more than enough of the sheep you burn as sacrifices and of the fat of your fine animals. I'm tired of the blood of bulls and sheep and goats. Who asked you to bring all this to me when you worship me? Who asked you to do all this tramping around in my temple? It's useless to bring your offerings. I'm disgusted with the smell of the incense you burn. I cannot stand your new moon festivals, your Sabbaths, and your religious gatherings. They are all corrupted by your sins. Okay, and now again, we get what does God really want? Well, first, I hate your new moon festivals and holy days. They're a burden that I'm tired of bearing. When you lift your hands in prayer, I will not look at you. No matter how much you pray, I will not listen. 
for your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves clean. Stop all this evil that I see you doing. Yes, and here it is again. Stop doing evil and learn to do right. See that justice is done. And, and again, here's our description. What is it to do justice? Help those who are oppressed. Give orphans their rights. And defend widows. Okay, so uh, we have this, uh, again, very repetitious theme here. God does not desire sacrifice, offerings, religion, just for the purpose of going to church and singing. What God desires is, it would appear, something quite different. So I kind of uh, summarized here. I would say, from, based on all of these verses here, what God is really not after is appeasement, to be appeased with blood sacrifice, or an emphasis on sacrifice and rituals to pay for sins, unthinking Sabbaths, worship attendance, religious ceremonies, festivals, noisy songs and prayers for the wrong reasons. Okay, what would the wrong reasons be? Well, just so we feel better about ourselves, we, we did, did something religious or to impress God. Okay, what does God want? Okay, and from, from these passages here, it would it seem pretty clear what God wants is that we show constant love to him and to others. That's the mercy to know him. That's from Hosea. That we live in humble fellowship with him. That we have a humble spirit, a repentant heart. That we give him thanks. Okay, and then our, our actions then are that we see that justice is done, which is a compassionate caring for those around us. That we stop doing evil and do what is right. So again, we, we have a contrast um, between uh, the, these two um, ideals here. And, and I want to just kind of uh, make this apply a little bit to us. A well-known evangelist uh, described here about the atonement, that it is God appeased his holy wrath against us. And again, this, this appeasement concept, um, which I think most of us would say, well, no, we don't agree with uh, appeasement. But sometimes the way that we describe or understand things can... can merge into uh, you know, the appeasement of an angry God. So I think we need to be careful there. Or when we talk about being saved by the blood, certainly we're saved uh, by the sacrificial death of Jesus. You know, no, no question, but uh, how does that work? Okay, who was paid in the process? How, how do we understand all of this? And I won't ask you to identify any of the, the things here on the, on the slide here. But uh, what is it about the, about the blood? Well, we will definitely talk about this when we get into Isaiah, uh, the gospel prophet. So, um, uh, but again, we have to very thoughtfully consider what we mean uh, when we use uh, this terminology. And the emphasis in these passages would seem to be uh, a de-emphasis on sacrifice for the point of um, settling some sort of legal account or paying off God, the emphasis would be more on our behavior. So we maybe contrast this. Well, no, let's, let's look at it maybe this way. Okay, here's what is preferable. Show constant love to God and others. Know him, live in humble fellowship with him. Let's begin to, let's think about things more uh, in that direction. Okay, and going to church, singing songs, this can be a wonderful experience. Okay, so no question that this uh, can be a very important part of our religious experience. Okay, but if this is the extent of our religious experience, if this is, this is it, and we, we you know, are involved in some worship uh, occasionally, but there is no change in our lives, no change in the way we treat people, no change that would distinguish us as Christians from anyone else, 
Um, you know, would God be able to say to us, I hate your religious festivals. Stop your noisy songs and prayers. I cannot stand your Sabbaths and your religious festivals. It, it's certainly possible to be very religious externally, okay, uh, in terms of church attendance and so on, but yet to, to treat people cruelly. And you know, Remember the one command Jesus gave when he left. One command, love others. So we might, as a contrast, have God say to us, well, what I would much prefer to uh, noisy songs, prayers, and worship attendance, uh, see that justice is done in the world. Show mercy and constant love and kindness to others. Stop doing evil and do what is right. Now, we always want to uh, apply something here to Jesus. And Jesus quoted uh, this passage from Hosea, this I desire mercy, uh, not kindness. Or I'm sorry, what did I say? Not uh, sacrifice. But let's just remember the people that Jesus was dealing with here, the Pharisees. Remember their, their mindset was very much, well, we are God's chosen people. We are the descendants of Abraham. And uh, they had a list here that, uh, well, which of us would, would argue? Here, they saw the law as very important. Jesus commented many times how very careful they were with things. Certainly, they kept the sacrificial system. Um, certainly, their church attendance was uh, impeccable. I'm sure they sang songs. Uh, paid tithe. Jesus, member even commented on how careful they were with their tithing. And they read their Bibles. Remember, Jesus commented, you search the scriptures. And, and they quoted uh, the Old Testament to Jesus. And obviously, they kept the Sabbath. And so, and again, not a bad list, okay, of things. But uh, here's, uh, let's just, well, maybe could we ask, why were they so careful? What was their motivation? And I would just like to suggest that um, their, their picture um, of God was certainly of a, of a vengeful, arbitrary, uh, condemnatory God. Okay, it is what led them to be so careful in their zealous observance of these things. But what happens when, when you are of that uh, mindset? You judge and condemn others. Your God judges and condemns. You're very careful to obey. And then very naturally, you're going to judge and condemn others. And so on these two occasions where Jesus quoted um, these Old Testament passages, they're both in this context of the Pharisees, the very religious people, judging and condemning others. The verse is found in Matthew 9 where we read, Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Jesus, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Hey, outrageous. And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. Okay, and this is Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Or in other translations, I'm after mercy, not religion. Okay, doesn't this um, fit kind of what we've seen here in the Old Testament? Um, these people, it's, it's all about the list. It's all about the, the belief system. It's not at all about how we treat people. Okay, that's not important. Okay, and so when they see Jesus here hanging out with tax collectors and sinners... Okay, that's not part of a religious um, life. Okay, and so they condemned him for it. And he brought them back to uh, this passage in Hosea 6, which if they had understood, understood that, I desire mercy 
Remember that uh, compassionate love, that constant love, that experience with God and with others. That's what God wants, uh, not sacrifice. Okay, the other examples in Matthew 13, same, very similar. Okay, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay, and I think we talked before how they tried so hard to obey that they made a much more extensive list to help them uh, obey. So all kinds of things that you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And Jesus has a very interesting reply, but I'm just going to cut to the end, where he said to them, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Okay, that's why I've said we need to get this right, all of those Old Testament passages. Okay, what does it mean? If you had understood what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so we have Jesus bringing us back um, to all of these passages. And I have some other ways here that this can be uh, translated, mercy, not sacrifice. In the Message Bible, I prefer a flexible heart to an inflexible ritual. Or it is kindness that I want, not animal sacrifices. And mercy, this word for mercy, not sacrifice, can be translated as compassion for others. Okay, so again, what does God really want? He wants that kind of uh, change in our lives. And the, the problem, if any of you haven't read this book, um, it's, it's very interesting. It came out a few years ago. It's called Unchristian. And uh, kind of their bottom line here in the book is to say that, well, it appears we're living in an age where religion makes little difference in our actual lives. Not to say that people you know, wouldn't say that religion uh, isn't important, but just that the external behaviors of people who would identify themselves as being religious is not that much different. And um, here was, uh, I'll just point one part of the survey, where they looked at young people, 16 to 29. How do you feel about quotes, uh, Christians, and they're 440 people, and these were what we would call outsiders, which means uh, they're not religious people, okay, uh, but they're just asked, um, how do you perceive Christians, okay, and their perception was, well, uh, Christians are hypocritical, 85%, insensitive to others, 70%, judgmental, 87%, too involved in politics, 75%, anti-homosexual, 91%. So again, the per perception here of a large group of, of younger individuals, your age group, who are not Christians, but uh, this, this was their perception of Christians that they have known. Okay? Uh, I think, again, this, this is very significant. These verses we've just read would all suggest, hey, we are to change. We call ourselves a Christian that should in some way be reflected in our lives. And uh, this quote here by Philip uh, Slater um, I'll just read here, but uh, I, I found this rather interesting. He said, The reason why so many Christians are so notoriously unchristian is simple. For the majority, Christian, Christianity isn't about the teachings of Jesus. It isn't about behaving like Jesus. It's all about faith. The underlying message seems to be, you can behave any way you want as long as you believe and say you're sorry before you die. There ought to be a term that would designate those who actually follow the teachings of Jesus since the word Christian has been largely divorced from those teachings and so polluted, that it has come to connote other polar opposites, intolerance 
vindictive hatred, and uh, bigotry. So he's very uh, has strong opinion uh, about this. But but I like just the suggestion here. What does it mean uh, to be a Christian? Is the emphasis on uh, my salvation? Am I going to get to heaven? Is that really what's important about Christianity? Well, this list that I showed you here a few minutes ago, um, I had the thought, is, is what we're saying here, if this is really what is important, well, these are all things that we do, right? This has to do with what's our relationship with God? What's our relationship with other people? And so the implication could be, well, are, are we earning our way to heaven? Are we working hard to treat others in a certain way to please God? Um, what about uh, faith, faith alone? How do we fit God's emphasis on living this way with all we need is faith? Well, um, to conclude, I want to just read here a passage in James, which I think is, is helpful in, in putting this uh, all together. Uh, you know, Martin Luther said James is a book of, of straw because he had a hard time fitting it with uh, faith in Romans. Okay, but I think actually James uh, really helps to bring this together. And James said, uh, do not deceive yourselves by just listening to his word. Instead, put it into practice. If you listen to the word, but do not put it into practice, you are like people who look in a mirror and see themselves as they are. They take a good look at themselves and then go away and at once forget what they look like. But if you look closely into the perfect law that sets people free, we think of the law that way, the law that sets people free, and keep on paying attention to it, and do not simply listen and then forget it, but put it into practice. You will be blessed by God in what you do. Do any of you think you are religious? If you do not control your tongue, your religion is worthless, and you deceive yourself. What God the Father considers to be pure and genuine religion is this. Again, another, here's a bottom line. Here's what genuine religion is. Take care of the orphans and widows in their suffering and to keep oneself from being corrupted by the world. And he would then go on to say something that would seem to be a contradiction to Paul. How was our ancestor Abraham put right with God? Well, Paul's very clear in Romans, through faith. Notice what James said. It was through his actions. Ooh, what do you think about that? It was through his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Can't you see his faith and his actions work together? His faith was made perfect through his actions. And the scripture came true that said, Abraham believed God or trusted or had faith in God. And because of his faith, God accepted him as righteous. And so Abraham was called God's friend. You see then that it is by our actions that we are put right with God and not by our faith alone. And maybe we could just try to make a, an application of this. Um, I mean, if I told all of you, uh, you know what, uh, there's a bomb that's going to go off in this building in about two minutes. We need to get out right away. Okay, now, if uh, all of you would say, well, you know what, we've, we've come to trust Dr. Cole, and generally what he's said has been pretty close, and at least in some areas, so I think we're going to get up. We're going to go. Now, what about if uh, 10 or 15 of you just decide to hang out here and, and sit down, not leave? Well, do you trust Dr. Cole? Yes, we, we trust him very much. Well, what are you doing sitting here? Okay, so when we really put our trust in God, um, if we really have put our trust in God, uh, it's unavoidable. An action occurs um, as a result. Okay, so trust, faith, and 
a changed life. Those, those two things uh, have to go together. And I think that's uh, what we're seeing here uh, in this passage in Micah. All right, so next time we will talk about the book of Isaiah. Uh, we're going to spend several weeks in Isaiah, but uh, be helpful in all of your free time uh, to maybe start reading through a few chapters in Isaiah. Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much in, in many of these passages um, for giving us some bottom line statements, for giving us some things that we can put our hands on and say, this is really what is important to you. Uh, help us, first of all, to put our trust in you. Help us, first of all, to see you as you really are in Jesus. And uh, as we put our trust in you, we ask that you would work out a change within us, that we would be- begin to live out a life of love and mercy and kindness uh, towards other people. Amen. <clears throat>